0: Our text comes from Hebrew chapters, chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. And I know typically you all read with me, but I'll just ask that you follow along this morning. It's a little bit more lengthy. But Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. Hear now the word of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to talk this morning about what is the hope of the gospel we use that phrase quite often, the hope of the Lord, the hope of the gospel, the hope in Christ. But I wonder if, like me, you often really don't take time to think about, well, what, what is it that is the hope? What are we talking about? I mean, it's no good to just say, well, I, I hope in the Lord and, and not think upon what that really means for your life. So as we, as we come to our text this morning, we're going to be considering and discussing what exactly is This hope, um, and particularly what it is uh, that this hope teaches us from our passage. Now, I'm going to read for you two quotes, uh, and I won't hopefully give it away until the second one. Here is someone who has chosen one great love and refuses to compromise or say enough. He gives all of himself for the betterment of his city. Every single resource, his time, health, and money... Goes towards giving people a chance to live safe and good lives. Now you may be thinking as as I did when I was reading this article, well, that that kind of that could talk about anyone in our culture today. We're in an election season, that might be discussing one of our candidates, that might be discussing someone running for city council, et cetera, et cetera. Now listen to the second quote. The reason we idolize Batman is because we deeply desire even an echo of that conviction for something truly worthwhile. What makes Batman a superhero is not his strength or his money or his training, but that he overcomes the fear of disappointment every time. In the end, Batman makes himself vulnerable again and again to the hope that all will be made right. He makes himself vulnerable again and again to that hope that all will be made right. Now, it's all good and well to talk about Batman, but you're probably wondering, well, what in the world does that have to do with our passage from Hebrews and with the hope that we find in the gospel? Well, all too often, I think we we long sometimes to be that person who saves the day rather than longing for someone to whom power is given actually to save the day. We long to be that person in the movie who fixes everything, who comes in the white knight on the horse riding in to save the day. But often we we miss what Scripture is giving us right here. There is already someone who has come to save the day. You know, this, this document... Or rather, this collection of documents is not stories, it's not lessons, it's not morals. This is an historical document given to us as testimony, the Old and New Testament, as testimony to what God has done and what He will do. But as we look to our passage this morning, uh, I would like us just to kind of walk through verse by verse to consider some of the important points and some of the highlights that may help us along our journey to see how the father of faith, see how Abraham upheld that hope that is in the gospel. So let's start in verse 8. Notice that Abraham went somewhere because he was called. He went somewhere because he was called. But notice specifically, he went because he was called to receive an inheritance. You see, this isn't a blind faith. Our father of faith isn't demonstrating some kind of cavalier, careless, wandering about. He went because he was called to receive an inheritance. He went because he was promised something very specific. And I think that's important for our culture, particularly as we sit in the busyness of our lives. Too often we think that we need to have all the details and all the decisions figured out before we can proceed forward, before we can go to those places to which we're called. But you know, I wonder, isn't that really kind of the harder way to do things, to try to figure out everything before you do it and then do it? I think Abraham and God are are teaching us in this passage that it's enough to be called to receive an inheritance. You don't then, notice Abraham didn't know where he was going, you don't then have to figure out your way through life. God says, in essence, I'm calling you to be my people. Leave the rest up to me. You don't have to cross all the T's and dot all the I's before you make every decision in life. Now, again, I'm not advocating some kind of willy-nilly process in going through life. Yes, we exercise good judgment and discernment and wisdom. But you see, it's not up to us to have to figure out all of life's grand questions. We simply have to trust in the Lord and follow. Abraham was called to receive a promise. We have a promise. We follow the Lord and we trust that He is faithful. But as we move on from there, in verse 9, we see a very strange concept. Notice that Abraham was called to dwell in a land of promise, but he was to dwell in that land of promise as in a foreign land. He was to be a stranger in that land. Well, what what does that mean? Why would God call him to an inheritance, to some land that he is to receive, and then make him live there as a stranger? What, what's going on? Well, I think primarily the writer is emphasizing here the nature of that earthly covenant. He's emphasizing that though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received that land flowing with milk and honey, there were still some things that were fundamentally wrong with it. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, went into the land of promise they conquered it, they inhabit it, and then what happened? Well, they continually fell into sin. They continually rebelled against God because something was fundamentally wrong. So it was a land of promise, yes, it was their inheritance, but they were living in it as strangers. It wasn't really home. And I think you and I can relate to that. I think every day you and I get up and we live in a land promised to us. Yes, we live in a land of freedom. We live in a land where men and women have shed their blood and given up their lives so that we may have the wonderful comforts of this great nation. But yet, we look around us and there's pain. Every newspaper, every television spot is all about the suffering that we have. It's all about the heartache and the hardship that we face in this life. See, we live in a great nation, but there's still something fundamentally wrong. It's still not quite home. But you see, our text keeps going. There's still grace and hope to be had. We continue on in verse 10, and we see that Abraham was expecting a city. And this wasn't just a wishy-washy hope. He was expecting a city whose whose very designer and builder was God Himself. Abraham knew that the promised land was great, but he also knew that that inheritance, that promised land, would pale in comparison to what lay in store for the people of God. Listen to how the psalmist explains this city, how he pictures this city in Psalm 46. He writes, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's this very same psalm that starts, God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in times of trouble. So you see, Abraham was picking up on that theme. He did have a land of promise. He was in his inheritance, but he also recognized that the nations were raging around him. The kingdoms were tottering, but he stood in the palm of the great God of the universe, his refuge and his strength. I wonder if you and I have that same conviction. Do we watch the news Do we worry about the presidential election looming in the near future? And do we think, oh, it's just going to shambles? Or do we think, this may be a hard time, but God is our refuge and our strength. I know that I'm living in this land as a stranger, but there is a city that I'm expecting whose very designer and builder is God. I wonder if you and I think that. Or do we get too often bogged down in the pain and the burden of this life? Well, let's continue on. Verse 11 is a very important verse. It explains to us the nature of that promise, the nature of that covenant that God made with Abraham and Sarah. And notice that we see Sarah conceived even in death. She was beyond childbearing age but she was able to give life herself because God, the great giver of life, was faithful. She considered Him faithful. And so she conceived. It explains Abraham the same way. A man who was as good as dead was able to be the father of nations whose descendants were as many as the stars in heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah knew that There was no hope left in her physical body. Our bodies wither and decay because of the effects of the fall. Even in her own flesh, she lives as a stranger. But yet God is able to redeem any situation. And He he allowed her to, to bring forth life that Abraham would be the father of nations. What a wonderful promise that is. Let's continue on still in verse 13. I think there are two important things for us to see. I think it gives us hope to note that all of these died without receiving the promise. Beloved, I want you to let that sink in. They had faith in God's faithfulness. They expected that city, but none of them saw it. None of them witnessed the great power of Christ working on our behalf. But yet they considered God to be faithful. They considered that He would redeem any situation. Now the, the second part of this verse that I think is very important. It's a little more technical for us. But it's in that phrase that we read, on the earth. I think it's important for us to note here to stop and take some time. Really, that phrase is, is a literal translation of in that land or in the land and it's important for us to consider this because we see we see that they were strangers and exiles on the earth now you and I may stop and consider that verse and say well well, we know that you know we wait for a heavenly inheritance right We, we wait for the heavenly existence we wait to go to be with the Lord in heaven but I caution you because really That was a distinction of the writer to say that in that land, the land that is marred by sin, the land that, yes, was a promise and an inheritance, but was beset with man's fall. They were strangers in that land. But let us not confuse the fact that this earth is our inheritance. This world is our inheritance. And the Bible maintains that though it is marred by sin now... The God of the universe, from all of history, has been marching down to be with His people. Since the fall, we were kicked out from the garden. But God proclaimed that He would crush the head of the serpent. That He would redeem and reclaim His people. And so we see here that Abraham's hope in the gospel was not just a hope that he would one day be in heaven with the Lord, but he hoped and he believed and he expected that city He expected that God would come to be with his people again. You see, they built the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They built the temple, and it represented the very intersection of heaven and earth, the place where God dwelt, where they met with God himself in worship. You see, that's what you and I are doing this morning. Even in our midst, though we don't see it, there is a great intersection of eternity and history. The Lord himself is with us in this place, along with all of the saints throughout history, along with the heavenly court, the angels and the host, proclaiming God's goodness. But you see, let us not confuse the fact that we would be leaving this place to go to some netherworld. No, the the heavenly inheritance that we are awaiting is one that comes from heaven. The scripture tells us that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, Here, God is recreating this earth for us to enjoy for all of eternity. When Christ comes again, what does he say? Yea, there is a day that is coming when the dead will hear my voice and they will rise from their graves. They will come back to a newness of life. I don't know about you, but that is some spooky language. That's You know, our current culture is on this zombie fad. Everywhere you turn, there's some kind of, we're in Halloween season now, but everywhere you turn, there's some kind of zombie hunt or zombie run or the undead. I mean, all of the TV shows are centered around this theme of the undead. And I don't want to give you a false picture. The Apostle Paul is brilliantly clear on this. Yes, we will come out of the tombs at the resurrection, but we will have a new spiritual body, a real body. Remember that Christ ate with the disciples. They stuck their hands in His wounds. But yet it's a a spiritual body. He says we don't clothe ourselves, or we don't long to be unclothed, but we long to be further clothed. That this perishable body, this, this stranger that we are dwelling in, puts on the imperishable. That death... The sin that we live in is swallowed up in life. That's the hope that we see in our passage. That's the hope of Abraham. Remember, we won't get to it, but remember when he sacrificed Isaac. A few short verses after this in our passage, we see the reason why he was able to think of that that gross act of human sacrifice. It's because he said, God, even if I sacrifice my son... I consider that you are so faithful to your promise. Remember that Isaac was the child of promise. God had said, Through Isaac, I will make a great nation of you. He He tells God, he says, Even though I would sacrifice my only son Isaac, whom I love, I believe that you would raise him from the dead because you are faithful to your promise. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is standing here today telling us the very same thing. He says, You were kicked out of the garden because of your sin. I am sinful, and I am barred from the garden of Eden by that cherubim with the flaming sword, but Christ comes to you and to me, and He proclaims the fact that though all of us march towards death, though we will all die not having seen that promise, Jesus, the Christ, by his resurrection, has also bought life for you and me. That is the hope of the gospel. You want to know what the hope of the gospel is? The hope of the gospel is that though this world, forgive me, but though this world just stinks, though it's just terrible, it is a burden to us. How many of you woke up this morning and thought, whew, I'm refreshed, I'm ready to go to church, this is a wonderful day. No, you woke up and you said, I am so tired of this life. I am so tired. I'm too busy to go to church. I don't even want to go. Because this sinful life, this promised land that we have, it's not our homeland. We're strangers. But God is proclaiming a day to you and me when He will come back. As the last verse says, he will be their God because he has prepared a city for them. He will be in the midst of her. God himself, as in the garden, will walk and talk with us. Do you believe that? Is that your hope? When your loved ones die and we're separated from them, do you believe that you will see them again? The Apostle Paul is clear, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Though our loved ones have died, and have gone on to be with the Lord. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. Yeah, you will see them again. At the resurrection, they will be raised to a newness of life, and we will dwell in sweet communion with all of the saints and with the Lord. Beloved, that's the hope of the gospel. The hope is that quote that I read, that you make yourself vulnerable time and again to the hope That God is making all things new. That no matter how bad this life gets, no matter who's elected, no matter if you lose your job or if you lose your loved ones, that God is faithful to His promise. That He will make all things right and good. Isn't that what Paul tells us? We believe that God is working all things to the good of those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, one last quick note. In verse 14, it's, it's interesting to see this. We have that in verse 14, they were seeking a homeland. And I want you to know, it's not apparent in our text, and that's fine, but that word homeland literally means fatherland. They were seeking a fatherland. They were seeking a place where God the Father would be with them. That gives me hope. I bear up in the midst of pain and suffering in this life because I look at death and I say, you're not the boss of me. I have victory in Christ. I have victory in the Lord. And that has meaning even for our day-to-day life. Even as you and I wake up and we go about our normal business, which too often is too busy... We go about all of those things and we remember, as Paul tells us at the end of that great resurrection chapter in Corinthians, he says, Be steadfast, be firm, and know that everything that you do working for the Lord is not in vain. Beloved, remember that every breath you take, every step you walk, every tear that you shed, every sigh that you breathe, your entire life is bound up in Christ. If you trust and you believe in Him, He looks at you and He says, it's not in vain. I know this life is terrible. I've been there. I've died. But you need to remember that I rose from the dead. And so will you. That is the hope of the Gospel. That we live in Christ. Even now we are foretasting the resurrection. And there will be a day when the dead will hear His voice and they will rise from the grave. And we will dwell with our God in the Fatherland, in our true inheritance, the true promised land. Beloved, I ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you rest in that hope? Is it sweet and good news to you? I pray that it is. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we plead for Your grace and Your mercy. We ask for Your help. Too often this life burdens and plagues us. Too often we crumble under the weight of our sin, under the weight of all of the brokenness that surrounds us, Lord, because we we have forgotten that we are strangers. We have forgotten that we are expecting a city whose designer and builder You are. We have forgotten that Christ Himself came to suffer and die and rise again so that we may have newness of life, that we may be restored in the joy of our salvation, renewed in the hope of the Gospel, that we may fall down and praise You, for You are good and Your mercies endure forever and ever Father, we thank You for that goodness. We ask that You would let it sink into our hearts that we may practice it in our lives. We come before You now on behalf of those in our midst who are hurting, who are particularly afflicted, who may be upcoming surgery or have just gone through surgery. We pray Your hand upon them, Your great and loving peace to reside with them, to draw them closer unto You, their Father. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, who have no hope. Father, would you give us the opportunity to speak that hope into their life that though they may be tasting death, that is not the end of the story. That there is an inheritance. There is a promised land. There is a city that we are expecting. Father, we pray for those in our midst who are facing doubts of belief, who are wondering what you are doing with their life who are wondering why it is that they are so burdened. Lord, would you go to them and speak your tender mercy? Would you give them your peace? Would you give them your healing? Would you allow us to be the instruments of that grace? Would you help us to go into those dark and painful places and to love the unlovely, to be with those people who so desperately need Jesus? not in a domineering way, but in a way that extends our life, that extends our very self to serve them and to give them your grace and your comfort. Father, would you help us in that, for we cannot do any of this without your Spirit. And we do pray in Christ's strong and resurrected name. Amen. Christian, it's my joy now to invite you to confess your faith. But as we we use this Apostles' Creed that we so often say, I invite you to look at the last few phrases with me to really dwell upon them. Do you believe in the communion of saints that all of history is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins that they are separated from you as far as the east is from the west? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? And do you believe in the life everlasting? Let us stand now and corporately confess what it is that we believe. Christian, I ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us remain standing and continue in our worship as we sing that great hymn of faith, Come now, fount of every blessing, hymn number 379.